How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Okay, welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm here today talking about trying to survive the Trump era with an activist and uh, scholar, Luke Elliott Negri. He's a PhD student at the CUNY Graduate Center writing a dissertation on labor-funded and labor-allied third-party politics in the contemporary U.S. And he's also an elected officer in the Professional Staff Congress which is a local of the American Federation of Teachers, covering 25,000 City University of CUNY uh, workers. So Luke, thank you for joining me in this bizarre moment. It's great to chat with you, Justin. Thanks for, thanks for asking. So let's start, if, if you don't mind, do you, to give me whatever thoughts you have on sort of what the hell happened in this election in the first place. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I spent the first like couple of weeks obsessing over, I guess, like everyone reading uh, too many articles and trying to understand. Um, and in a way, what I came down to was, um, you know, the the election turned on a hundred thousand votes in three states across three states. So I think, in a way, almost any explanation that you can concoct will will tell you what happened because. You know, uh, whether race, whether gender um, and whether, you know, the failure of the Democratic Party to, uh, you know, respond to the needs of the working class in the context of a declining labor movement. um, All of these things, in a way, explain it because it was so darn close. Um, So so I think, you know, it's it's a good exercise to go ahead. You're just kind of speaking scientifically there because because any almost any explanation can can account for a hundred thousand votes exactly i mean almost yeah you could you could say um you know and i think on the left um there's some folks who who kind of get rubbed the wrong way at any defense of clinton but i do think there's a sexism story to be told and you could probably Mm -hmm. squeeze a hundred thousand votes out of the sexism story um you know i i come from a perspective that focuses on the labor movement and on class politics in a lot of ways and so i think you know, the, the, the deep and longer running story is the decline of the labor movement, deindustrialization, and, you know, a lot of folks who either have lost their jobs or are anxious about uh, losing their jobs in the future. So I, in some ways, I think that's the, you know, that's one of the deep stories to be told, but we can't discount any of these other stories, I don't think, because, because the margin was so close. So, uh, you know, racism, sexism, classism, and all these things explain, explain in a way that 100,000 votes, I think. Okay, and as someone who studies third parties, uh, it seems to me one of these stories is the Greens. So maybe uh, can, can you tell me that? Because I've, I've read people who, you know, obviously the Democrats are very angry at the Greens, as they always are in every election. Um, and uh, so what, what's your sense about the, whether the Greens cost the Democrats the election? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I hesitate to... Uh, to you know, call onto the carpet anyone who wants to run for elected office. Like, you know, I, I think I think if people have the inclination, they should uh, they should give it a go. My, my issue with the Greens, I would say, is that they seem to, you know, maybe they would uh, maybe they would disagree with this characterization, but they seem to put a lot of eggs in the basket of running a 
a presidential candidate um, every four years, and that being a high salience moment to you know maybe bring some notoriety, some money to the organization. Um, you know, at least what I've seen on the ground in New York, and I can't speak for everywhere. I know they have like a, I think they have a city councilor elected out in Minneapolis. I'm, I'm sure there are some places in the country currently where they have some elected folks. But but my view is that like the presidential race for the left, whether you know Greens and the environmental left or or um, even labor funded efforts. Um, you know, the, the the presidential election is just not, you know, the kind of big place for third party candidates. I think at the at the local level, there's a possibility of building a serious pipeline of um, of candidates who are independent of, you know, the moneyed interests that we know are kind of engaged in uh, in the major parties. And so um, so that's my kind of uh, I, I guess I'd say if I have a critique, I would say it's that, um, you know, the egg should be put in the basket of recruiting people at the local level to move through that kind of electoral process rather than to kind of hang our hats on a, on a third party challenge once every four years. Well, this is why I wanted to talk to you today, because I've, what I found really interesting about, you know, the articles that I've read of yours was that, that idea that we should just, or that leftists, radicals should just, for a little while at least, abandon the presidential race, uh, because there's actually thousands of elected offices um, all over the country, some of which could be fairly easy to um, get a, be elected to, and then it would it would develop um, pr- the practice of running, the the ability to campaign, the the skills, the connections, all of these things that uh, would eventually build up to bigger races or the possibility to challenge for bigger races, and. I think you've written about um, Seattle and the mayor of Seattle and and that experience a little bit, or or maybe you've studied it. Can you talk about a few of these kind of concrete experiences that that show the possibility of that? that I mean, I'm I'm happy to talk about Shama Sawant, and I I wrote a little piece for Jacobin Magazine about her and have a forthcoming... um, you know, kind of chapter in an edited volume on uh, successful social movements and kind of the relationship between social movements and um, and having a you know a leftist in elected office in Seattle for the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage outcome. But in a way, I think the most you know important story to zoom in on is Bernie Sanders in the early okay. days. I mean, this you know we, we have a socialist who just got uh, thirteen million votes in the United States, which is like anyone who's paying attention is blowing their minds that this happened. Now it was in a Democratic primary, granted, but I mean. This is like, uh, you know, we are in a in a new world, right? I mean, it's 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 uh, it's post nineteen eighty nine or however you want to think about it. I mean, it, it's just different, and I don't think anyone exactly saw this coming. Um, and so his story is that you know, in the nineteen seventies, he was running for statewide offices and and losing, getting five six percent of the vote, and kind of doing this classic <laughs> lefty thing of you know, I'm going to educate the masses um, while losing an election. And I think people, working class people, and just people in general are are too smart for that. I mean, they're not going to get behind a, a losing race, right? I mean, they're just not interested. And so, you know, he had a, a kind of advisor, an academic, um, his name is, uh, I think, Richard Sugarman, um, who said, look, I'm, I'm looking at the data, and you did really well in Burlington, much better in Burlington in your last race than anywhere else. And so in 81, he pivoted and ran for the mayor of Burlington, along with a couple of folks who ran for city council, kind of on the Barry Commoner, um, you know, off of that kind of push. And, uh, you know, he won by, like, what, eight or nine votes? I forget the exact number. Eight or nine votes. I mean, they had to have the, the ballots impounded because they were afraid that they were going to just shred a few. And, 
Um, you know, so it's like a stunning story. And, and to think that what we just saw this past year hinges on seven or eight or nine or ten votes from 1981. I mean, if that if he had lost that race, uh, you know, the, the, the future would have been different in some way. I mean, I think it just shows how important it is to zoom into the local level and to, you know, to engage races where having seven, eight, 10, 15, 20, 30 volunteers can turn an election, you know? And that's mm-hmm. and that's the origin story of Bernie Sanders. If you if you skip that origin story, then you don't have what we what we saw this past year. You know, what about because <laughs> I, I, there was a counterfactual that I heard uh, after the election. I think in an interview that I read, um, where somebody was saying, I think it was um, I think it was a Toronto leftist writer, Leo Panage, who I think sometimes writes for Jacobin. Yeah, yeah. he was interviewed, I think, by Arun Gupta, and he said something like, "Yeah, you know." Uh, if the what really scared me was the possibility, like if Bernie had won and then lost to Trump, it would have been this gigantic setback for, yeah. you know, because then it would have been socialism that that was discredited, right? It was it would have been like any right. left kind of demo, Democrat party thing would have been proven to. Like, it doesn't discredit Hillary that... It doesn't discredit the right wing of the Democratic Party when they lose, but it certainly would have discredited the left wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. Uh, like, you know, if, if you're if you're in a high-stakes fight and you lose it, there are serious consequences. If you're not in the fight, then there's nothing to lose. So, I mean, I, right. I, I, in a sense, I agree <laughs> with that, right? But, like, you know, we, we had an election that was... Um, you know, I, I was hoping for socialism or barbarism, and instead it was neoliberalism or barbarism. That, those were the choices. And I gotta say, um, you know, now that it's all rolled out, uh, I, I wish neoliberalism had won, and I think that's a yeah. safer terrain on which to work and organize. I mean, people are afraid for their, you know, basic well-beings and pr- afraid of a, you know, kind of proto-fascist turn in the mm-hmm. country. Um, you know, whatever the extreme limitations of a Clinton presidency, and I just saw some piece the other day that, like, uh, Schultz from uh, Starbucks was in line for uh, the the Department of Labor, uh, the Labor Secretary. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but, like, you know, uh, he would have been a far cry from Tom Perez, who is a far cry of what, you know, we would expect from someone like Bernie Sanders. That said, you know, uh, God, it would be a lot easier to be uh, fighting the fights that we have to fight on the terrain of a neoliberal president versus what we have right now, I think. Yeah, and and I mean part of uh, part of the barbarism, you know, I, I remember reading this about like Mussolini, and somebody said, you know, the problem isn't as much the big duce as it is all the little duces, mm. and like the way that the way that this kind of attitude infiltrates every institution, every aspect of life, where you'll get people feeling a sanction to to be more racist to engage in bullying or uh or police more police violence you'd expect or or kind of like just shutting people's uh free speech rights down uh this kind of a kind of a permissive environment that's created for just more violence in politics i mean i gotta say man my my neighborhood in brooklyn uh this place called bar tobacco which is this little french bistro joint where people watch soccer games Uh, a trump supporter cold clocked a woman who was talking about hillary clinton in a positive light just punched her knocked her out this is like a couple blocks from my apartment so i mean you know this just wasn't happening before before trump had this level of salience so uh you know and then of course i mean this guy ran and he's talking about uh registering all muslims in the society i mean these are statements that uh 
whether he act, I mean, if he acts on them, that's a whole other ball of wax. Then we're dealing mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, just a, a terrain that's uh, barely thinkable. Um, yeah. But even if he doesn't, then your point holds, which is that um, there's a there's a segment of the of the society that really gets a sense of empowerment from from hearing those things, you know. So if we're talking about thinking more locally and and thinking about you know building a longer term uh, challenge to the system using the electoral system, uh, what is that? What is that? How do you have to modify that under this new? Trumpism. Uh, I mean, yeah. How do you have to modify it? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I, in some ways, I think uh, there's the, you know, there's just the kind of direct action, uh, self-defense mode that we need to be prepared for. Yeah. If there's a Muslim registry um, setting aside electoral politics altogether. Then, like anyone who cares, better become a Muslim overnight. You know. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so, so you know, there's there's. Yeah. Uh, there's that kind of level of things. If we're talking about electoral strategy, um, then I think you know the place where those of us on the left can have the most impact, as you and I have talked about before, is you know is on the immediate local level. Um, you know, I read somewhere, and then I was pulling up uh, in preparation for chatting with you a list of um, cities in the U.S. that have races coming up in 2017, and it's like half mm -hmm. of all U.S. cities. I mean, it's massive. How many 2017 wow. races there are? Council races, uh, mayoralities, whatever. There's a you know just a heap of races, right? And I think there's a lot of anxiety about there out there about what's going to happen under Trump, and you know, even for some of the most extreme stuff, it's going to take time to roll out, right? I mean, I'm very yeah. concerned about like there's this Supreme Court case heading up through the Seventh Circuit called Janus v. AFSCME, and it will be the end of agency fees for public sector unions. But that's going to take a year, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, we've got we're in a year right now where there's uh, you know there's a bajillion of these races that we can you know, um, hopefully recruit some, you know, strong independent candidates too, and, and to work on some of these races and to, you know, we can't, we can't stop some of the things that this guy is going to do and that the people he appoints are going to do. Uh, we have to try. We're not going to be able to, but we can work now to build this pipeline of candidates who will hopefully change the kind of composition of, um, you know, of elected officials in the country in the decades to come, right? And so that's work that we just have to, to start right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's my mind is going in a in a bizarre direction as you say this, but I was just watching this Al Jazeera special on the Israel lobby in the UK, and just the way that the the way that the political officer at the Israeli embassy worked. I mean, it, you know, lots of people watched it thinking, "Oh my God, how awful!" You know, the influence being exerted over UK politics this way. But when I watched it, I thought. The, the they the Israeli lobby works so hard and so constantly and they they do this they don't they don't neglect any level of government they don't neglect any any race any any group on campus they they'll they'll work with them and they'll get their message out there and they'll you know and that that kind of like it's it's so different from the left approach of running, you know, trying to run a campaign every four years yes. for the presidency, knowing that you're not going to get anywhere. So I just have to say, I mean, there's this great, um, it, it's really just a descriptive account of the Tea Party by Theta Scotchpole and uh, Williamson. Mm -hmm. I think it's Marianne Williamson. Um, but, you know, there's this little anecdote, I think, in the introduction to the book um, before really diving into what's going on in Tea Party lands. I think they published this in 2012. Um, and, and basically, Scotchpole says, you know, one thing I'll tell you, I've got a lot of liberal wonky friends in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who 
could argue with you about policy details until the cows come home, but wouldn't know the first thing about how do you petition someone onto a ballot? Like, how does that happen? And, mm-hmm. you know, you go to rural Arizona and these people are willing to put in the grunt labor of figuring it out. I mean, going there and oh, wait, what does it take to get someone on the school board? And then they get their cousin on the school board, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's just a, a different orientation to, uh, to politics, you know, even than liberals, perhaps, uh, but certainly than the left seems to have. Um, and, yeah. and so, yeah, it's just right. There's there's a lot of these right wing organizations seem to, you know, um, really be oriented to those details and to be able to build power over decades to think in decade long terms, you know? It's not just the long term view, right? It's the kinds of knowledge. Like we're we're focused on like academic knowledge and expertise on uh, you know, the history of the of the Russian Revolution maybe or right. details of foreign policy, but what what would actually take to change it is exactly this, like what races are open, how can we find a candidate that could win and then how do you get somebody right. how do you fill out these forms and right. and so on um, what about unions yeah i mean uh it, it's huge and and it, to be honest i put you know i mean I, I i think electoral politics are incredibly important but probably 80 percent of my organizing energy goes into you know kind of labor work and 20 percent is to electoral politics i'm not saying that's a formula for anyone but i'm just estimating how i spend my time um you know so so <laughs> You know, I mean, what can I say? I just think um, this is capitalism and uh, organized labor is, is, you know, kind of a response of working people to the dynamics of that economic system. And so even if the labor movement as we know it, in the United States at least, but really globally is kind of, um, or at least in Western countries, on the decline in some way, um, I just don't see organized labor, as long as capitalism is doing its thing, not being a, a fundamental force in electoral politics and in people's lives. Um, and to the extent that it isn't a fundamental force, things are going to be bleak. Um, so, you know, I mean, in a way, I think there's all these races to dive into. But like, um, you know, funny as it is, I'm happy to throw up a Facebook status every once in a while being like, hey, are you like annoyed at your boss? And you want to know how to organize a labor union? Like, direct message me, you know, like, we should talk about this. And um, you know, uh, the, the best pieces uh, kind of, of of our society in the United States, uh, many of the best of them came out of the 1930s when there was just massive labor upsurge, you know. Um, and I, I think if we, uh, if we keep heading in the direction we're in, that will happen again. Um, you know, I, I think there will be just a response to the kind of conditions in some way. But, uh, but in the meanwhile, those of us who are tuned in, I think, need to be putting a lot of energy into organizing uh, at work. I just don't, I don't, I don't see a way in which that, you know isn't pretty fundamental to how we respond to Trump and, and beyond. I mean, and like I said, I mean, you know, we've got this Supreme Court. I mean, I don't know if you know about the Friedrichs case, but there was a case that if Anson Scalia hadn't died, would have eliminated agency uh, fee for public sector labor unions. And now the, the next iteration of that is already making its way through the courts. And, and presumably Trump will nominate someone who's going to rule in the wrong direction on that. And so, I mean, this is just going to, I mean, First of all, it's going to, I mean, the public sector labor movement is going to lose tens of millions of dollars over this, um, yeah. you know, power electorally. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be tougher to organize for those workers in, in a lot of ways. So it seems to me that the United States is is there's like a special hatred for unions and a special like a series of special difficulties to union organizing that uh, that we don't see even in Canada, for example, and much less in Europe. Like the, the concept of a right to work state, I don't think is nearly popular outside of the states. And I was just chatting with someone about survey data on this. I don't, I, I should have the numbers uh, clearer in my head than I do, but 
Um, bizarrely, uh, I, I, thi I think the way the survey data, this is recent survey data, plays out is that, um, that folks, um, a majority of folks support labor unions, but also a majority of folks support right to work uh, mm. legislation. And so, I mean, we could spend, you know, the next hour uh, trying to explain why that is. Um, you know, there's this great book called Why Is There No Labor Party in the United States? Speaking of comparativism, um, mm. really looks at one year in the 1890s. I mean, that's how the book hinges. But it, it takes all of the explanations for American exceptionalism with respect to third parties and labor parties. The guy's name is Robin Archer, a historian, um, mm -hmm. and, and compares, um, compares the United States to Australia in 1896, I think it is. Um, mm -hmm. You know what I think? I think one of the explanations, one of the important explanations is the kind of power and level of organization of capital in the United States. So, um, you know, in Australia, get this, they had a winner-take-all electoral system, and the capitalist class essentially in the 1890s was so uh, nervous about being just pushed off the grid entirely in terms of elections that they advocated a move to a parliamentary, to a proportional representation system. And that is ultimately what happened, right? So, so to imagine that being the context, I mean, one way to just say it, and I think this is, I think this is part of Archer's argument, although maybe it's been a couple of years since I read it, but you know that, that essentially the capitalist class in the United States was more brutal and more well-organized than yeah. the capitalist class in Australia. Um, you know, and so I, you know, we could talk yeah. about workers' perceptions of right-to-work laws and labor unions, but we could also talk about, I think, the extent and depth of organization of capitalists in the United States and their willingness to spend gobs of money. Resources. Kind of, yeah, yeah, resources, kind of wrecking labor unions and creating a certain yeah. set of perceptions, yeah. After, just after the election of, of British writer George Monbiot, he wrote an article about the foundations, the media think tanks, and then the way they kind of roll out messages on social media and the way they're able to pay people to comment in the comment sections right, and right. Twitter. Kind of like what you said at the beginning, there are lots of explanations for why Trump at all won, but one reason is they spent 10 or 20 or 100 dollars for every one that we that our side could scrounge, however you define our side almost. Right, right, right. Um, sure, sure. So. Yeah, I mean, these guys have deep pockets, right? There's a, there's a great <laughs> line in that Theta Scotchbull book where, uh, where they say, uh, Scotchbull and Williamson, where they say, um, you know, when you have people with billions of dollars, the, the personal quirks of those billionaires matter for how politics play out because they have a thought, they have a feeling, and all of a sudden there's an organization with paid staff that's acting on that inclination, you know? So, yeah, we're in a, you know, we being however you want to define we, as you just said, in a very different position than those folks who can have a half thought and then just birth an organization overnight, you know? Here's a real question about the we, who we are. But watching the way the, let's say, anti-Trump side of U.S. politics is just, like, tearing itself apart over positions on Russia or Putin. It's pretty painful. Sure. And I don't know, I don't know what kind of, like, coalition-building insights from history there might be for this moment, but uh, it seems to me like the split is either happening or has already happened, and there's this really some really strange realignments going on. People that I really like and respect are are I'm I'm watching interviews with them on Fox News and then like I'm watching Glenn Greenwald on Fox News huh? and then I'm watching I'm watching people advocating for war with Russia that I thought were pretty cool liberals so I don't understand right right uh, what the hell uh, yeah I mean I don't I, you know maybe I'm a one-trick pony but but my experience just organizing whether inside of labor unions or around electoral stuff is that a concrete organizing project 
at the local level does a lot. I mean, like what? So this is because I'm on Twitter. You're saying this is just yeah. like things people can internet. say because they're on Twitter and the internet. Yeah. I, I just, the, I mean, I, you know, I follow this stuff to some extent. Of course, we, you're paying attention, but like I literally cannot control some of these things as an individual or even in the organizations that I, uh, you know, put some of my time into. We just do not have the capacity to control these things. What we do have the capacity to control is can we recruit maybe two humble candidates to run for city council in New York City? I mean, and, and can those people become someone like Bernie Sanders 10 or 20 years from now? I mean, so not that we should ignore these things. I don't think we should ignore them. But like, I, I can't control whether Glenn Greenwald decides to go talk to some no, I, you know, Fox I think, News, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that he should have talked to Fox News. You know, it just, for me, it's just like, and I know Fox News doesn't like, what can I say? I know, I know Fox News doesn't want world peace you know they're not bringing greenwald on to to say uh let's let's not let's cool let's cool the rhetoric on russia because we want you know a general reduction in the possibility of nuclear war that's not their interest that's greenwald's interest but it's not theirs on the other side it's like you're watching like somebody like keith olbermann screaming about Russian scum yeah. and how we're at war with Russia. So, right. I don't know. But like you said, you know, it, it's, you know, I'm just sitting here on Twitter and that's probably a big part of my problem. <laughs> well, Whereas I'm glad we could work yeah. through that. Uh, you know, I don't know. I have a Twitter account and I've gone through like two or three iterations of trying to use it, but I just fail every time. I do it for like a month and then I just drop off it. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's it's good. I mean, people get a lot out of it, but uh, but it's also... Well, it's also, you know, it's funny because it's a Brit, like, you know, I I am a little bit involved in my, in my faculty union at my university and and I do some, you know, some, I'm involved with some other, with another couple of organizations locally, but, you know, some of the, some of the, some of that, like, local bickering and local, you know, personality conflict just drives me nuts. So it's, it's a little bit like a break to, to read about geopolitics or something on Twitter. Yeah, no, you know, that's really interesting, man. I mean, this is, I know, not what you want to talk about, but I, just over the years of organizing, I've I've come to really feel like, um, you know, because you have to zoom down to this micro level in order to build power, right? There's You don't build power mm-hmm. at, at the macro level. Power, you know, shows up at the macro mm-hmm. level, but you build it in day-to-day interactions with people and building out organizations, right? That's where power comes from. And... I just, you know, I don't know if it's especially on the left or if it's just life, but politics and, and people's personalities get, those issues get conflated all the time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and managing people's, you know, just personalities yeah. and their feelings and thoughts and your own feelings and thoughts while you're interacting with them. I mean, this is a big part of what it takes, you know, yeah. not for nothing to even get someone elected, right? There's a lot of just personal dynamics and interpersonal dynamics. And this is a, I mean, I think we need some kind of, repertoire of tools as lefties to uh, to manage these things, right? If we just pretend that every conflict is a political conflict, when in fact we have some, you know, some internal and interpersonal issues that are kind of blocking things, then I, you know, I think it's just a tougher road. So we have to balance those things. I mean, we can't, you know, we can't see it as all one or the other, but I do, I mean, your little anecdote about just the kind of bizarreness of zooming down to that level is, is uh, it's not for nothing. It's a real, it's a real issue. Are there historical examples or readings about that, like group dynamics? And like, there's a lot, there's a big management literature that I, that I get into every once in a while, but it like for a, for a non-hierarchical organization that's not able to impose capitalist directives on people, a lot of that management stuff doesn't apply. 
Right. So you know, how do how have unions addressed this? How have how have sensible or what have sensible organizers kind of? Yeah, you know, made it's it's funny. I mean, I've got like you know, I, I could refer you to like you know theoretical stuff arguing about the importance of kind of the even the psychological and the interpersonal. But you know, my kind of sense of how to negotiate that terrain has just come from experience, and it's making me wonder like, have I read things that I've forgotten about, or are there things that I should have read? I, I don't know. Um, so I, I just want to throw, uh, one, one or two other things out there. I don't know if you have yeah. another direction you want to head in. No, no. I, yeah. But just to say that, um, you know, so my kind of pitch to, you know, folks who are tuned into this stuff is to think about the local level and to run, but you know, that's not something you can really do as a single person, right? You need a group, you need an organization. And so I think, um, you know, and I, Certainly don't have all the answers to how to do this, but I, but I think some inclinations towards the type of organizations that um, that might be able to do this. So I was involved with a group of people in Brooklyn with this um, you know, little crew of people that we call ourselves the Brooklyn Socialist Club, and the whole point was just to recruit an independent candidate to run um, for elective office in New York State or city, depending. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, found you know I think candidate recruitment very very difficult. Finding the person, the person is like a, not an easy task. Um, yeah, so it's something sure. for folks to think about. You really need, a, you know, you need a group and you need a broad network. And and even then, it becomes hard. Um, yeah. I've talked to someone from the Working Families Party who said that just finding someone to run in Philadelphia where there's a kind of structural opening for an independent candidate has been difficult. You know, so I think yeah. like. Um, Finding candidates is hard, and so you need organizations to do that. And so this little outfit, the Brooklyn Socialist Club, um, kind of folded itself into recently the Democratic Socialists of America, um, which mm-hmm. has undergone, you know, really initially thanks to Bernie Sanders, but then um, uh, kind of double double strength after Trump, a huge surge in membership. I mean, like it passed 10,000 members just a little while ago, mostly just people mm-hmm. probably clicking on the Internet and looking for something. Um mm-hmm. But there is an electoral committee in Brooklyn of this group with like 25 people who are excited to come to meetings and sort out how can we how can mm-hmm. we do electoral work at the local level, um, kind of in the in the mold of um, in the mold of Bernie Sanders. Um, so that's one place to look. And then the other, and this is kind of I think contentious among some folks on the left, but Stephanie Luce um, just wrote a great little piece on Medium um, about. Uh, about the role of the Working Families Party in, um, in, and, and other forces in the state labor unions um, of kind of pushing Andrew Cuomo, our governor, who is, um, you know, let's say he's not of the left. <laughs> uh, mm. and, and so, of, of, but of making him move on some very significant, um, you know, legislative kind of activities, including raising the minimum wage in a way that's going to have, a, you know, a, a mass impact on working people in the state. Um, and so... You know, I think she argues rightly that the Working Families Party was a key kind of vehicle for for some of that movement happening. Um, I think you know, if you're of the left and in the labor movement, um, people tend to have a much more positive view of the Working Families Party. If you're of the left and not in the labor movement, I think there's a more critical view. But to me, mm-hmm. I see it as a very important vehicle. And they have gone, you know, undergone a huge surge in membership um, thanks to Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, and are working on building out presences in states that they didn't previously. Uh, you know, have any base, um, you know, so that I think that there's some big open questions about how the organization will structure itself in this kind of new phase. But I, I do see it as like, you know, it's a labor union funded organization with the good and the bad that comes from that. Um, but uh, but I, I think they're just an important vehicle. Right. So, you know, those so are two organizations I, I think are worth mentioning. Yeah, thanks for that. The, the, the criticism I heard of the Working Families Party is basically like 
the the kind of left criticism of Sanders himself, which is like, you do this thing, you have all this momentum, and then at the and the key moment, you basically throw your weight to the Democratic Party because there's no uh, alternative. But I guess um, from a from a pers- from the perspective that we've been talking about. Um, at a at a high enough race, like if you're talking about the mayoral level in New York or the state level in New York, then that's bound to happen. But it but you could achieve like a truly independent candidate at a lower level potentially of. of yeah, the, I mean, the, you know, I'm sure some people would be critical of the decision to kind of defer questions about you know the broader national stuff you know off into the future. But I just really do think like we just do not have the power, the forces to really. I mean. I don't want to say, like, on the other hand, you know, when you're talking about an election that turned on 100,000 votes, you know, the left does have enough capacity to move 100,000 votes um, if it wants to support a candidate like Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, I don't want to wash our hands of, of what goes on nationally altogether. But if we're talking about over the long run, out of the long run, over the long run, how to build the kind of power we'd want to see, then I think we do need to zoom in on that level. You know, the WFP, it's, it's interesting. In New York, they, I mean, they've essentially built the progressive caucus of the city council, um, you know, and many of the candidates in that caucus are kind of candidates that they've, you know, recruited and ran their campaigns. And de Blasio is a WFP guy through and through, um, you know, but they've chosen to operate inside of Democratic parties, uh, in, inside of Democratic Party primaries, it pretty much exclusively with a handful of exceptions in New York State. And so that's a, you know, that's a decision that, uh, you know, some folks are critical of. I spent time in Burlington, Vermont, where, you know, um, a similar dynamic has unfolded in this city. It's a much smaller city, of course, I mean, almost maybe too small to, to be worth the comparison to New York, but, uh, but where, you know, a similar thing was done, but outside of the Democratic Party. And so you have a, a two-party town, essentially, there's one Republican on the council, but a two-party town of, um, you know, of progressives and Democrats. Um, and, and, you know, I think the WFP has done something similar in New York, except, you know, it's all Democrats, essentially. There's, you know, of, I think of 51 seats, there's maybe 49 Democrats. And, you know, I mean, I saw from being in Seattle with Shama Sawant that there is just something exciting. I mean, they, they, in Seattle, they have nonpartisan races, but something exciting for people about, hey, this is a socialist. This is an independent. It kind of inspires the city in a way that, you know, even a good candidate inside of a Democratic primary doesn't seem to have that kind of galvanizing effect on the city. Um, so so anyway, uh, just weighing some different uh, approaches, I suppose. Well, this is all good. This is all really good. And this conversation was really good for me. I really wanted to talk to you because uh, it's 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 one of these things where, you know, under in the next four years, you're going to I'll give a lecture or, I'll, you know, I'll be at a demonstration. And there's always like people who say, what do we do? You know, I wish we knew what to do. I wish I knew what to do. And it's like there are there are some clear things to do. You know, there's there's like the social resistance, and then if you want to build for the long term, I, I really like this idea of that. There's a lot of space in our electoral systems that leftists simply are not using, yes. and it's not it's not because we've been driven out yet. It's not because we've been excluded. It's just because we don't think that way right right no it's great i really appreciate you uh yeah inviting me to chat it's been a good conversation for sure thank you thank you